And so I, I just use that motivation, like, okay, we'll do something about it. And that's how like, well, exposure tracker, I'll, I'll help prevent other firefighters getting these chronic lung damages that I've suffered. Welcome to Lessons in Leverage, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of success. We'll help you unlock the secrets of leverage so you can amplify your impact in the world. Here's your host, Spencer Lowe. Welcome back to another episode of Lessons in Leverage. I'm really excited today to be talking to someone with some really interesting experience. Clive Sabakul is someone who was a fire chief in South Lake Tahoe and his team of emergency responders works through a region-wide evacuation due to wildfire. So he has some some deep experience in emergency services. And then he moved into startups and was able to successfully create and sell a safety startup called, startup called Exposure Tracker. And now he's working on a second company called LogRx, which is also in that uh, kind of intersection of technology and EMS, emergency medical services of another industry. So his background includes 25 plus years as a firefighter and paramedic, a chief officer in the San Francisco Bay Area, a combined six years as a fire chief with the Garden Valley Fire and the city of South Lake Tahoe, and also has other fun and interesting life experiences in motorcycle racing. He won uh, an American Federation of Motorcycles Championship in 2019, and he now ho- helps coach and mentor upcoming racers. So quite a diverse background. Thanks so much for being here, Clive. Yeah, thank you for having me. I was just telling you before we got started that I grew up in the in Northern California. My family is from all over Northern California. I personally grew up in Vacaville, but you know, I I am very passionate about. I was excited to see your experience with kind of wildfires and emergency services. Just to share a little bit about me, I when I was born, I was born in the Philippines. My dad was actually in the military, and so Mount Pinatubo is the second largest volcanic eruption of the last hundred years when we were there. And so he worked for the security police for the air force. So he was there doing the evacuation of that at the time. And my mom with six kids, including me as a one and a half year old, we just started getting shuffled around in this evacuation, had to just take what we could take in two trash bags and go. And so we had this like six week period where we were with our father, couldn't contact him very much. And it was this crazy experience that led to my parents growing up doing a lot of seminars at churches and other places about emergency preparedness. And so I grew up hearing about kind of how these types of emergencies can shape you and can and being ready for them and the lessons that you learn from these really high stress environments are so important. And so when I saw that you've been through some of those as obviously as a firefighter, as a fire chief, I thought, yeah, I can see how this would be super valuable for the audience to dig into. And I'm especially passionate about the Northern California fires because my brother works for the CHP actually in the helicopters and he was doing in the big Napa fire. And this may be the same time that the same one that you managed or maybe a different one, but during all the Napa fires, he and his partner went in and, and were flying in hundred plus mile an hour winds. They shouldn't have even been out there, uh, but they're in the helicopter doing full power and moving backwards. And so it was, they're getting thrown around. And so one of the craziest experiences he'd ever been through. And so all that is to say, my all of my life experiences, I, I've had people around me that I admire who have been involved in these types of situations, you know, wildfire, emergencies, evacuations, and I've seen how much that can shape them to have a skill set to manage stress, to make good decisions, to uh, to have to make quick decisions, and think clearly through trade offs and 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 things like that. And so, really grateful for your service for for the things you've been able to do, and excited to see a little bit about your experience. So with that all being said, with that that background, we'd love to hear about some of the formative experiences you had in that role, kind of working through that evacuation. Or if you'd rather start somewhere else, feel free to start somewhere else. What were some of those formative experiences that started to shape through your career, how you think about dealing with a big 
stressful, difficult situation like an evacuation. Yeah. Well, first thought those are amazing experience. Probably as a kid, it was pretty, pretty scary, but yeah, the evacuation was something I'd, I'd never done before. I haven't ever evacuated a city as the fire chief before. And I'd tell you there was three main factors that really made it successful. And it was, we had, we evacuated 30 plus thousand people in four and a half. Wow. And so it, it went very smooth, relatively speaking, but there's three things, pre-planning. It's like having a good plan way in advance partnerships. So having good relationships with all the stakeholders and there's more than you think. I mean, we had to have good partnerships, with the, the sewage department, because there was factors that they had to deal with bus companies to get rid of bird bankers to evacuate people that don't have cars. And so there's a lot that went into it. So the partnerships, and then the third thing is acting. It's, it, it's always a question is in any fire chief, city man, emergency man. Okay, when do I actually pull the trigger? I'm actually going to tell that tens of thousands of people to leave their home. This is no small decision. And we found that, you know, when we finally made that call, I was in the um, lobby of the city hall with the city manager where our emergency operations center was set up. We both just looked at it. It was like, we, we got to pull the trigger now. We can't wait for incident command post. And, and so we, we did it, worked the sheriff's department and it worked out really well. But um, having good partnerships, pre-planning and acting early were huge uh, contributors of the biggest things that made it, made it successful. Um, other than that, it was just kind of surreal working close with your, your stakeholders, but yeah, it was quite, quite an experience. One of the things that I think a lot about is there's, there's this concept of like the, the craziest things that can happen to you in any, obviously when you're in an emergency services role, you're, you're sort of knowing that the crazy is what you're preparing for. You're preparing for the things that are not common and are maybe high risk, you know, and, and are, are high impact and so you're preparing daily for that like a lot of people when something isn't really proximate when it's not something i run into every day it can be hard to prepare because you maybe just don't think it's going to happen to you it's not going to happen it's not going to be something you have to deal with and so it can be this sort of we can be lulled into this sense of security where we don't prepare for the big thing and the big thing comes and it's really impactful really harmful you know, in business for, you know, not preparing for certain threats or not preparing for certain risks in our personal life. Certainly, I think most people are actually woefully underprepared for even just a basic evacuation and haven't thought through what happens if we might have to leave our house. So what, what are some of the strategies when you're in that domain that you use that allow you to be ready for the big events? Because you, you can't start from nothing. You talk about that pre-planning skill. How do you start to get ready for and, and how do you make sure that that's not some big surprise when it comes? Have you heard of O'Brien's Law? I haven't. O'Brien's Law is Murphy was an optimist. And <laughs> so it can happen, it will happen. And so first off, you have to fall back on your experience. You know, you look at these leaders, these people in critical situations who are just cool, calm and collected and they handle it well. It's because it's not the first time they've handled a situation in that manner, or at least been part of one. And so my 25 years of experience as a firefighter out in the San Francisco Bay Area, I worked in North Richmond primarily, which is a very, very busy area, very high call volume, lots of fires. And so I had that background of not just my experiences, but being led by Vietnam vets and other people that were just dialed and they were, you know, hard as nails. And I grew up under the, these people that, that kind of taught me process of how to think on these emergencies. 
So combined with my experiences, that kind of helps get the right mindset. But then the preparation side, it, it there's so many details that we pulled out just demographics of the community to find out where the lowest income areas were. And so that we could identify, okay, let's put the buses in those areas for the evacuation or not just Nevada, but California Department of Transportation. Let's notify our neighboring agencies who all these people are going to flood into. Coordinate with the power company because we had a problem with them starting to shut off power in an area that powered the pumps that fed the hydrants. And so there's so many moving parts that fortunately we had designed an evacuation plan and had it approved by the city council on, I think it was August 3rd. And I, and we built this thing thinking, okay, we're never actually going to use this. No one's ever evacuated Lake Tahoe before. And it was on August 30th, we actually evacuated Lake Tahoe. So it was less than a month after this project we've been working on for months to come up with an evacuation plan was approved by city council. Um, and so because it was fresh in our minds, and the fact that all the stakeholders had gotten together to work on this plan meant that three weeks later, when we actually executed it, it was still like we just got together. So it, it, the, the, the details were, were key in making sure everything worked smoothly. Having a tow truck, having tow trucks ready to go because you're evacuating cars are going to break down, cars are going to run out of gas, Teslas are going to run out of power. And so just simple things like having tow trucks ready to go. There was a, a whole lot that went into it. Not to say everything went perfect. We learned a lot, but in general, we going through the details and making sure they were vetted and having plans B and C made a big difference. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's something that, you know, I think is a critical element of our lives that we don't spend enough thinking about. It's like you said, we're never going to use this, but we need to have at least thought through it. And then bam, next thing you know, you're using it. Well, I think what I have found in life is that the the things that 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 we never think are going to happen are going to happen whatever that is you know and the only difference is we're either going to be ready for it or we're not i mean you know everything has never happened until it does and so you know places have never been evacuated until they do you know when we lived in the philippines that that volcano was not going to erupt until it erupted was the second largest eruption in the last hundred years 10 miles of mountainside exploded you know that it was noon the sun was directly overhead and pitch black you couldn't see your hand in front of your face and it's like nobody nobody was sitting around going yeah that's gonna happen you know and, and i mean in fairness in the weeks preceding the 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 actual explosion scientists were saying hey this is getting active etc it wasn't like a complete surprise but but if you went back two or three years no one thought it was gonna happen and all was like oh we're gonna have 10 miles and even in the weeks leading up they didn't realize the scale of what the eruption could be they saw activity but they had no concept of how big it was gonna actually be and so there's these con the, the, this idea of like bad things are going to happen. They're going to happen to your business. They're going to happen to your family. They're going to happen to you personally. And so this pre-planning element is, are you going to have a set of plans in place that you can follow so that you don't feel lost in that moment or are you not? So how do you then apply that when you start to look at your business? You know, you can't pre-plan for everything. So how do you start to gauge what you should pre-plan for, how you should prepare What's the right balance of knowing? And and maybe and maybe there's even a nugget in there. It's interesting that it was three weeks later. Maybe there's a nugget in why did you finally plan for the evacuation of Lake Tahoe when it had never happened before? What was some of the impetus on that? So I was a newer fire chief in South Lake Tahoe, uh, and so was the city manager. Great guy, and we both came on like a week apart. 
I started like a week before him and we both came on. We were both of us very progressive minded and because of recent fires and the, the way the climate is in California or changing wildfires, we both said, okay, let's, we need to take a serious look at the evacuation plan. Um, and we pulled it up and it, I don't want to say, I don't want to criticize the person that built the previous one, but it just had components. For example, the city was a triangle shape on the top of, or at the bottom of Lake Tahoe. And it had arrows. The map had arrows of where to evacuate. And none of them were really going in the same direction. And we were looking at that. And like some of them went to the lake, like telling them, go find a boat to evacuate. It's like, no, that's a horrible plan. And so we looked at this plan and then looked at the rest of the details. Like, oh my God, we have to get every copy of this out of circulation. Nobody can see this because even if we create a new one, if somebody finds the old one and they follow an arrow to the docks, that's going to be, be terrible. And so basically we just saw this huge void of a problem that we knew we needed to address, which is kind of the same with a business and a startup is we all have these ideas. You know, for me, it was, okay, we paramedics, we carry these lethal drugs, fentanyl, morphine, and we keep track of them on pen and paper that there's got to be a better way. This is a huge problem. And opioids are a little bit of a challenge and a problem in the United States. And so my mind was, there's got to be a better way. What can I use my experience with to come up with a good idea? And so that, that's kind of how the evacuation plan, new one came about. And then also my, my company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really, really important. I mean, so so you're watching the environment. I mean, literally, in the case of the fires, you're watching the environment and you're saying, hey, what was true before is maybe not as true now. And so at some point, it may not be true that we just never evacuate Lake Tahoe. And that foresight then leads to the pre-planning that then has you in a strong position when you actually have to do it, which ended up being faster than you probably ever expect. And, and I think it's similar with business. You you know, you're not operating in isolation. You're operating within an economy, within a set of government regulations, within among a set of competitors. You're operating in all these interdependent systems and, and, and in, in an environment where you've got to keep your head above just the day-to-day operations of your company. It's easy to get stuck on just, this is what I'm working on, but you have to be able to zoom out and look at what's going on to know, hey, there's been a lot of fires recently, or hey, there's a recession that could happen or maybe already happened or what have you, or there's businesses that are our clients are struggling with cash flow or you know it could be anything but noticing that and saying all right let me go ahead and start pre-planning for what if they you know worst case scenario it's not gonna happen but what if all our business dried up or what if you know all of a sudden there was banks started collapsing as happened last year what if you know some of these things actually happen what would that mean for my business and what what plan do i need to have in place because certainly we can't plan for every unexpected outcome but a lot of outcomes are leaving hints before they happen. And so if you're looking at the environment and you're seeing that there are some risks, I, I think even even the less likely risks, taking the time to assess those and just make sure you have at least some planning in places is valuable. So you talked about the pre-planning. You talked next, I believe, about sort of coordinating with all the different stakeholders. But this is something that that I've certainly seen, you know, the ability to communicate. It's not it's not transferring information. It's not, it's not just saying something and hoping people hear it. It's like, do you understand? And I mean, an example of that is right here where I live a few years back, there was a wildfire and they were putting out all sorts of information about who needed to evacuate and when. I learned that day that I didn't know what my neighborhood was called because they're saying this neighborhood needs to evacuate. 
And I was like, oh, Lake Mountain Estates? That's, I think that's the one just south of us. No, that's my neighborhood. So I'm, I'm, I'm on Twitter. I'm hearing the helicopter over us, picking up water from the lake and going and dropping it. And I'm like, oh yeah, honey, we're good. <laughs> we're fine. You know, it's, it's the people south of us. Although we should probably be ready because if they're evacuating the neighborhood south of us, you know, it's a matter of time to probably evacuate. So let's just start calmly getting our things together so that we're ready for a potential evacuation. So we start taking some actions. Well, then I find out when a sheriff officer knocks on our door and says, Hey, are you leaving? Cause now is the time. Like you have no time left. It's time to go. And I'm like, Oh, that's our neighborhood. <laughs> the, they're sitting here. They're telling us on Twitter, they're driving through the neighborhoods, but we didn't hear it. You know, we're in our big house. We, we had no idea until someone came and rang our doorbell and said, do you realize you need to be gone? That we were like, oh crap. And next thing you know, I'm seeing pictures of a, a raging wildfire that's on the edge of our neighborhood, two streets away with, you know, and, and I had no idea the danger we were in because I was sitting here thinking, oh no, they told us I'm watching Twitter and they're telling us this and I didn't even know. And so this idea of communication and collaborating with, with the stakeholders, whether that's the people that need to evacuate or the sewage or these other groups, did they understand the message? Did they actually get and understand the message is actually a really challenging problem. What, what are some of the challenges you ran into with that communication? Because obviously it, it's more than just telling people, you know, you mentioned not letting them have a copy of the old plan that could break down communication. If someone's looking at the old plan that could blow it up. What other challenges did you have in making sure people understood what they needed to understand? Man, you hit the nail on the head. So communication is so important in so many facets. And really quick on your point about neighborhoods, we had that exact problem. Like there's neighborhoods in Lake Tahoe where you go to the county assessor's office and that neighborhood, that subdivision has a certain name, but that's not the name the community calls it. And so we had to make sure our evacuation plan announcements were what the community called it, not what the county assessors called it. So a lot of little details like that, but communicating. So there's different, two different communications there was to the public and then there's with stakeholders. So to the public, we started early. We started earlier that summer because in on July 4th, there was the Tamarack fire, which started kind of southeast of South Lake Tahoe. And it got out of control, blew a lot of smoke into Tahoe, and people were getting nervous. And so we preemptively went out to the community on social media, physically on the internet, telling them, sign up for Code Red, which was this service that would basically tell you on your phone, hey there's an evacuation near you or something like that. You know, whatever the information was, they would get it. So we told everyone, sign up for this. And then because it's such a tourist spot in Lake Tahoe, we went to every single hotel and we go to the vacation rental board and we would give them these little five by eight cards. I think they were with information on evacuations and a QR code. They could scan it and sign up. code. And so we just blanketed the community for about six weeks before we evacuated, even before we even knew that fire was going to happen because we kind of had other incidents and then there was the media. So very political in Lake Tahoe for people in another area, a lot of the politicians have homes there. A lot of rich people have homes there, very political. And the tourism is what subsidizes the economy. And so there was this big concern. Like we can't tell people not to come because that's, that's the, the lifeblood of the community. It's our, our budget. And so finally I went on the news. I said, don't come to Lake Tahoe. You know, I, I, in front of the press release, do not come to Lake Tahoe. If, if even if the fire doesn't get here, the air quality is the worst on the planet. Like you are going to be stuck inside coughing. Do not come to Lake Tahoe. And I caught some black from it, but like, hey, my job is to protect the community. And so then that all paid off so that we did do the evacuation plan. And something else, when you do the evacuation plan, you don't just say, okay, everyone evacuate. 
even though that morning we knew we were going to evacuate everyone, we started with different neighborhoods first. And so the ones close to the fire first, and then we also identified areas of low income where they didn't have cars, so they get in buses. So we evacuated patches of the community because we knew strategically we need to do it in this order to get everyone out smoothly. So there's a lot in that communication. And some mistakes were made, like some, they sent the wrong alerts to some areas. Still, we just called an audible and made it work. The other side of communication with the stakeholders was a, a challenge in itself because you take fire chiefs, police chiefs, sheriffs, politicians, and you put them in a, in a, in a room. You've got the biggest egos, type A personality you'll ever find, myself included. And so there were some in territorialism. We all thought our own city was the most important. But we were still able to work together and make sure that, okay, what's the best plan? Let's make sure we execute it well. And because we'd all pre-planned these, these evacuations, everyone still was on the same page, even though we still butted heads every once in a while. In fact, the time to evacuate and the time to repopulate, there were some very, very tense meetings. But at the end of the day, everyone sat back that, okay, we learned some lessons, but that, that did go well. And so the communication piece between stakeholders was was critical so you you got this message out there before you even needed to use it in terms of developing a line of communication directly to the people that might be affected and with the other stakeholders involved people that could be making decisions would need to coordinate open up that line of communication what what if anything was the biggest challenge you ran into with communication was there anything that sticks out in your mind that either didn't go according to plan or just was much harder than you anticipated it being Without a doubt, is my own staff. So I was managing such a big incident. And granted, there was an incident command post managed by the Forest Service and Cal Fire. And then we were managing the city with the sheriff's department. So we all kind of worked hand in hand. But I was looking at such a big picture that I delegated to my operations chief. Hey, you, you handle our guys. You know, we had 40 guys, just under 40 guys. And you handle them. You know, keep me abreast. You know, we chatted 10 times a day. An hour, it seems like. But after the fire was in, and what we did is we kept our crews primarily in the stations in case something happened in the city, in case embers came in and buildings started to catch fire. I needed crews in the city because if we just emptied the city and sent them all to the, the fire line and something happened, the whole city would burn down. And some of the guys were, were pissed. Like, no, we, we want to go fight the fire. And it's like, well, wait for the fire to come into the city. And in hindsight, it did. A grocery store that was evacuated, you know, the community was evacuated, but a Rayleigh's grocery store caught fire. And so we had a three alarm or four alarm commercial structure fire in the city while the other fire was going. We had crews from LA County, you know, and Burbank fighting this commercial fire with my firefighters. But when the firefighter, when the fire was essentially out, my guys were like pissed. Like we wanted to go out there. We saw like we're, we're sitting in the station. Like one firefighter told me, you know, I, I gained 10 pounds from all the people bringing this food and then see a single flame for the last two weeks. And like, well, sorry, you know, we all have our jobs to do. I didn't like sitting in an EOC for 20 hours a day for the last six weeks, you know, but that's my job. And so the communication piece could have been better with my crew. I could have explained to them, Hey, which I did explain to them, but I should have spent more time. I should have taken time maybe to visit the stations more. So that communication piece fell short, which honestly is a generational thing. You know, Gen Gen Zs and millennials, they they need that that more positive reinforcement, the reassurance that 
that, Hey, this is the plan. You know, I, I do care about you and this is why I need to do this versus generation X where, like I said before, we were raised by Vietnam vets and our goal wasn't to get a pat on the back. It was to not get yelled at. And so that piece, I definitely would do different if, if I face the situation again. I mean, that's such a good insight though. I mean, when you think about in business, there's, there's always fires that come up and that are outside of maybe your city, right? Your business or your focus area. And you want to, and you have to respond to those things, but you can't just allocate everything to that or else you'll have an even more critical fire pop up right there within your own city. And so having the foresight to make sure we have resources available to continue to, to manage critical risks in within the city. And then maintaining what we need to do out on the actual wildfire. I think that balance has got to be really tricky. And then to, as the, for the people, of course, you know, you sign up to be a firefighter. You want to be out there with the other firefighters out on the line, doing your part, contributing to something like there's this huge drive and need and want to go be part of this, the solution. It's so hard to, to then be playing that role in that case of, no, I got to wait for something to happen here. And so, yeah, I think that that. That element of, well, you told them, but they didn't feel it. And this is something I've run into a lot in my career so far is just learning just because I said it doesn't mean they heard it. Just because I said it doesn't mean they understand it. Just because I said it doesn't mean that they feel it. And so the burden of the communicator or of the leader is really high to double back, triple back, continue to communicate, continue to give that clarity on all the levels, on the, on the intellectual level, on an emotional level. And really get it all the way into the body and feel it when I'm doing the right thing, that I'm I'm contributing by staying here, that I'm playing a critical role. That's hard, especially if you're managing a, a big incident. Really hard to make sure everyone's getting what they need in the communication style they need. It's a really challenging problem. It was. And other challenges, they didn't see me much. I mean, I would go to my office every few days, but the command post wasn't at my office. You know, it was at City Hall, and then when we evacuated, we moved it to uh, Harris Casino in the Nevada side. And so some of my guys felt like, like, where were you? We never even saw you. It's like, well, you can see me on the news five times a day. I, I was here, you know? Yeah. And I was in Cabo with a background being blurred out with Tahoe. So, <laughs> so yeah, that, that piece was definitely a lesson. And, and in their defense, you know, they're rock stars that train hours every day for this. And then when it happened, they're all dressed up with nowhere to go. You know, and, and so I could definitely see it from their side and had that big commercial grocery store fire not happened. I don't think they ever would have understood why I, I held them back. And I didn't say, I didn't say I held all of them back. I did send three crews to help, but it, it, it was something that I really learned a lot on how to work with newer generations. Yeah. I mean, and that's. That's one of those things where, I mean, as a leader communicating, there's so many different facets. There's sort of generational tendencies. There's tendencies based on the way they see the world, their values, their life experience. And so it's the more you have to communicate, the more you have to lead, the more you realize one skill set doesn't get it done. You know, one set of tactics that worked with a certain generation, with a certain group of people in a certain context. There's so many different aspects to communication to learn. And so, yeah, I love that, those insights. Well, as we, as we transition them from, obviously, I love the emergency preparedness. I just think there's so much to learn in that. And I also think most people are just covering their eyes and hoping they never go through an emergency. So I love drawing more attention because it's a very high leverage skill set to be prepared, to have, you know, communication in place, to be ready to actually confront something really challenging. I mean, if, 
I'll just plug that if you don't have a plan for how you would evacuate your own home, you know, if there was uh, an emergency and you were told to evacuate, you should probably put some thought and have your own little plan for your house. You know, we growing up, we had like fire escape plans. You should probably have a basic fire escape plan for your own house. You know, these are some of these things that people become an adult and if no one tells them to do it, they go, I didn't know I was supposed to do that. I'm supposed to have a plan for what happens if there's a fire in my house. I'm supposed to have a plan for what happens when they tell me to evacuate. No, I'm never going to have to evacuate. This is America. I live in a safe place. There's I, nothing can happen. And so for sure, as we close out this part of the conversation, that would be my only plug. Is there anything you would add to that, that, that people should be thinking about or some, some critical things they should think about in their personal life of just being prepared for some of these things that could come? Yeah. That's, that's such a great point. And we do live in a bubble. We feel sheltered in the U.S. Like, no, no, someone will take care of it. But every day at the emergency operations center, we would say, you know, hope for the best, but plan for the worst. And so you have those plans ready to go. And I could tell you over 25 years of firefighter, I couldn't tell you how many people I've seen die in fires, but you'd, you'd be like looking at someone like, why don't you just jump out that window? You would have broken your ankle. Yeah, it's your second floor, but you'd be alive. You know, just there's certain things you can do. Just get out. You'd be alive right now. So I think there's certain aspects of just having a plan and then just making that decision when it occurs. Don't be afraid. It is so critical. Great. Great insight. All right. So then what took you away? You know, your first business, you started to get out of public service. Tell me about what that transition was like, because public service, very different from entrepreneurship. I'm sure there's some, some strong lessons and carryovers, but what was that transition like for you? And what what was it that drove you to say, all right, I'm ready to go more into an entrepreneurship role? A little bit, a little bit. It was somewhat forced at first because I, I had some serious lung damage from a house fire in 2011. And then in 2014, I essentially had to leave my job as a battalion chief, a training chief in the San Francisco Bay area because I, I couldn't go to fires anymore because of the damage to my lungs. And so I was offered, you know, you can be training chief forever. That's your job. We'll promote you to assistant chief when available, but you, you can never go be a battalion chief out in the field again. And so I said, no, I'll go do something. And so I left and then you go from being a training chief for a county of a million people and well-respected and, and at least my opinion, leaving all your buddies at the fire department. And then I went home and my, you know, 1250 square foot house. And like, well, now what do I do? I'm qualified to be a firefighter, which I can't do anymore. Qualified to work on motorcycles. So what am I going to do the rest of my life? I think I was 36. And so I had, I had consulted with a company called Tablet Command, which is uh, start another startup a few years prior. And I thought, you know what? I, I think I could do something like that. And so I found somebody to team up with who knew the business side. He had a developer to work with and we built uh, exposure tractor and and it was hard, you know, making that adjustment to, to being a civilian, you know, you, you do lose your identity when you leave the fire service you don't realize it until you're gone. And I felt like it was taken away from me, um, because my health. And so I just sort of had that moment, like I was like a panic attack, like at 3am one morning, like, what am I going to do with my life? Cause I, I'm not somebody that can sit still. And so I was like, okay, I'm not going to just sit here and feel sorry for myself. I'm going to find something. And I, and I was in bad shape. Like I, I'm 205 pounds right now. I was 170 because of how much my, my lungs were impacting my health then. So it was just a really bad kind of dark time. And so I, I just used that motivation, like, okay, we'll do something about it. And that's how like, well, exposure tracker, I'll, I'll help prevent other firefighters getting 
these chronic lung damages that I've suffered. And so that's how that idea spawned. And then meeting the right people to execute just really, really took me off. And then once I had that bug and I learned so much from Exposure Tracker, that LogRx, I just kind of started, you know what? I could fix this. I can make this better. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's, again, comes back to the same theme of things that you can't control and would never anticipate. We like to believe, oh, whatever my career is or, you know, whatever my identity is, this thing that I've made something critical to who I am, that'll just always be that. And then you find out that you aren't your job. That's not what makes you you. Maybe it was part of what made you you for a long time, but here you are, you're still alive, you're still thriving, and yet not a firefighter anymore. And it's like, that type of a transition is huge. And you know, you see this a lot with professional athletes or anyone who spends a lot of time putting an effort into developing and succeeding at a certain thing. And then they realize now I have to move to the next thing, especially when it wasn't your choice. That's a really tough transition to go through. And so going through that and finding your way into business, I mean, some of the really important things I think the audience has to key into there that you just said is one, in that adversity, what am I going to do about it? How am I, what, like, okay, this is the circumstances, but life's not what happens to me. It's what I'm going to do about it. It's what I'm going to make of the situation. And so I don't have to give up my purpose to help EMS services. I don't have to give up my desire to be involved there. I'm just not going to be doing it on the front lines based on this, what's happening with my health. So then what can I do? I mean, that mindset, asking a question like, how can I make this the best thing to happen to me? How can I make this a new identity? How can I make this, you know, the best next step? Like asking questions that are going to let your brain start to see the future is such a powerful habit to have because you could just sit there for years and go, woe is me. This happened to me and there's nothing I can do about it. And I'm stuck and it's not fair and damn the world. And, and you can just get stuck in that. So choosing that thought pattern really, really powerful to open up those next doors. How did you go about, you mentioned that you had done some consulting in the past. How did you find the right people? Because I think there's people either by force or by choice that would like to get into entrepreneurship, but maybe they're like, but I'm not a developer. So how can I possibly build an app? Tell me about how you met those people and what that transition was like to kind of starting a team that could, that could do things that you maybe didn't have the skills to do. Yeah. Great question. The the startup I consulted for was founded by two firefighters and one of them was my firefighter when I was a captain. And so when I later promoted the battalion chief, he had this idea that he went to this other guy who had some development engineering skills and they found another engineer and then they had venture capital uh, group that was going to invest for them. And so they got their little startup going and they found this CEO, Sky Thompson. And, he, and so I met him. So basically those guys came to me and said, Hey, you know, we, we need some help. We give us some feedback on creating this, this program tablet command, which is basically how to command a fire using an iPad. And I said, yeah, sure. And then they said, Hey, can you come to San Diego to this conference kind of represent us? And I was like, yeah, sure. And like, yeah, we'll give you a thousand bucks for the week. I said, no, no, you guys, my buddies just cover my hotel and play. And so I helped them out like that a few times. And I got to know Sad Thompson, their CEO. And just like the nicest, most brilliant guy you can ever meet, super business savvy. And so, and, and I'm like a sponge when I talk to people that, that are kind of outside my, my realm and I hear things from them and learn it. He just had such a wealth of knowledge that I would always ask him these questions. He's really smart. And so that's kind of how I got kind of the bug and got kind of learning, okay, this is how you build a startup. 
And then years later, when I started LogRx as an idea, Sky Thompson left Tablet Command and I called and said, Hey man, why don't you be the co-founder with me on, on LogRx? And, and, uh, we'll, we'll split everything and just make it, we'll be the team. I think your side and my side, we could execute amazing product. And so he came on board. And so I did what I would had done previously as a fire chief. If I had a void in my skill set, I would surround myself with other people that would fill those gaps. So we're a lot smarter as a, as a team than just by myself in my own little echo chamber. And so working with Sky, we found a developer, a, a rock star to Utah that just was senior coder that he'd worked in the past. And personalities are a huge factor anytime you're building a company. You got to get along well. You got to keep work with good people. And so I think just looking at areas where I didn't understand, I would seek out information and realize, okay, I, I don't want to hire an offshore developing team to build my program. There's too much issues that can go wrong. And so I think that finding those right people, finding those boys that I wasn't understanding was how it really took off. What, a couple of things I just want to highlight that I love about what you said there. First is, I think people wait until they need something to start asking for things. So it's like, oh, well, now I want to start a business. Who can help me start a business? That's a really tough time to start building a team. Now it's not impossible. There's still ways to do it. But what you did was, you're over here as a fire chief, no intention to ever work in tech. And you're working with other firefighters, not, again, not a breeding ground for starting a tech company, generally speaking. Huh. And yet, because you invested in the relationships and you cared about the relationships, this is something people I think miss so often. They, they think everyone's going to be tomorrow how they are today. I'm working with the guy, this guy, he's a firefighter right now. He's going to be a firefighter forever. You don't, you don't know that. And so you can't, you can't treat people based on only what you can get from them. But if you invest in all the relationships you have today in whatever industry you're in, then those people might open doors for you in the future. So, so first of all, just investing in the relationships and not letting those relationships go. You know, if I still try to keep in touch with people I worked with years ago, just out of the fact that we built a relationship and by keeping that relationship strong, who knows how we can help each other in the future. And so, so first off, you, you invest in relationships. Second off, they ask you for help and you just freely give it. I mean, again, you could easily just be like, oh no, I'm, I'm a firefighter. I got to focus on this. I can't help you with that tech thing. You just say no and you miss out on all those learnings that you described. So seeing how you're willing to then say yes, lean into helping others and investing in those relationships that way, well, that opened additional doors in a very serious way. And then understanding that in order to be successful in anything, you got to put together a team. And so instead of seeing, well, these are the limitations, this is why I can't do it because I don't know how to do it. It's who can I partner with? And since I have all these relationships, there's people to ask, Hey, do you know anybody that does this? You know, Hey, I met this guy, you know, who the CEO are you, you're done with your current venture. Would you like to come into this one? I mean, all those things can come together. And so you got to plant the seeds today for things you don't even know are going to happen. You got to treat today. Like it is that multi-million dollar opportunity years down the road. Because it is, because you're going to get down there and look back and go, wait a second, that guy I went to high school with is now a, you know, multimillionaire successful CEO. Wait, those, those people I went to college with or that I worked with in this job, they went on to do this really successful stuff. Oh man, I'm going to call them now. Like they're busy now. Like, so it's like, if you invested in the relationships, then you start to have this wealth of, of experience to draw from. And so just like two or three really strong tactics people can implement from that story to build the relationships and invest in them, to be willing to give freely and help others with what you do have to offer, and then to soak up the knowledge 
uh, so that in the future you might be able to to implement it. Yeah, I'm a very firm believer in karma. It's a real thing. And then another factor that you know, I love your two cents on. But from what I've found with like investors and venture capital groups, is they look so deep at the founders to make sure that they get along, that they got cohesive uh, personalities, they got good integrity, and that they're going to be good to work with for the investment group. Because so many startups fail because the founders bump bump heads and have disagreements and they split up and just ruin the company, which I knew with Sky is like, okay, this guy's got integrity. He's going to be a straight shooter. He's never going to lie to me. I'm never going to lie to him. We're going to be, it's going to be a good marriage for the, the company. And so that piece is so critical for anybody starting a, a startup. Yeah. Great insight. I mean, you cannot undersell the the importance of both your own character and then the character of the people you work with. And I mean, sure, if anyone's going to give you hundreds of thousands, millions plus of dollars, they're going to care a lot about those dynamics, the relationships. And so I think that highlights another skill that we maybe didn't shine a big enough light on, which is this idea of wherever you're at right now, what are you doing to become the person that can get along with everybody, that can play well with everybody, that can you know build those strong relationships? Because we all have hard personalities we have to work through. But no one wants to invest in somebody that like the first side of trouble just gives up, walks away, throws a, you know, fights, throws a tantrum. Like, I don't, I don't want to trust that person with money. <laughs> so, you know, that ability, the social, the interpersonal side, you, you can do it as a firefighter. You can do it as a mechanic. You can do it as any role is an interpersonal role. And so ignoring that, I sometimes hear like developers or other people in my sphere say like, oh, but I'm not, a, I'm not good at the social side. Like, man, work on that. <laughs> we all have to be good at the social side. So. There's a, a huge value in that, that like you pointed out, VCs place importance on, as well as obviously the experience and everything in the founders. And so you're not a finished product today is, is I guess what I'm trying to, to highlight with this is you're not a finished product right now. So be building towards that because you don't get 20 years down the, the line and look back in Clive's position and say, oh yeah, whoops, accidentally I found myself here. It's in hindsight, it's very obvious. He built the skills, he built up all these different elements that led to this. If you're not building that stuff now, you won't look back in the future and say, oh, it all worked out. But you don't have to know how it's going to work out in the future to do the right thing. And that's sometimes a, a dichotomy or a bit of a paradox of like, well, if I don't know how I'm going to turn it into a future business idea, then why am I doing it? It's like, because you need the skill. You need the experience. You need the, these, these building blocks. Well, we're getting towards the end of our time, Clive. I want to ask you a little bit about AI. I mean, obviously you're in a technology startup. I'm curious if there's anything you're seeing in your domain. You know, we talk a lot about leverage and we talk about how it's important. I mean, to accomplish anything, you need leverage. And, and we talk about leverage just as this multiplier force, you know, getting more out of outputs out of less inputs. And so one of the big things that's going to affect leverage is AI. You know, it's going to affect labor leverage. It's going to affect technological leverage. But I'm curious if in your domain, if there's anything you're particularly watching, interested in, or seeing on, on the AI front that, that you're either excited about or you think will disrupt kind of what you're doing. So AI will really give us some amazing analytics on what the data we're collecting can be used for actionable operations in the field. And so when we, we have thousands and thousands of users using our, our program to track their usage of narcotics. And so as we get more data and as we expand our development program, what we want to look at is, okay, what patterns of human behavior are we seeing? What patterns of drug administration are we seeing? So that an agency will be able to look at our program and it'll tell them, hey, you should keep this amount of this drug, this amount of this drug. 
you should allocate this much over here to this part of the community because that way you'll have minimal waste because most of it will get used where it'll tell them, hey, start transferring drugs over to this unit because it's busier and it's going to on the shelf if you leave here. And then there's the aspect of the social, social side of things in the community where like a project we're working with the Portland Fire Department on, there's this drug called buprenorphine naloxone, which is basically a drug that you'll take if you're stuck on like opioids, a narcotic, and you're trying to get clean. And so what Portland is doing is they're going out to like homeless areas and are giving out this drug, volunt- you know, someone wants it voluntarily. They'll give them the drug and then they'll give them the path of who to talk to next to get off opioids, get clean, give them housing. And so this first step, they're using LogRx to administer the drug to the community. And then our program, it'll show a GPS mapping of where these drugs are being administered. So, so what it's done, they can look back when they have enough data and say, okay, we see this is the biggest area of usage for the drug. We can really help. We've seen results. And so the AI piece of it, I think we'll get to a point where really help guide the operations of, of an organization to help better treat the community, be more efficient. Yeah, I love the two pieces of what you said there that that people should be thinking about with AI in their personal life and even more importantly in business is if you want to capitalize on everything that AI is going to be able to do for us, you want to have one, a proprietary data set that's valuable. If you have your own da- data set that is valuable, you can do, now do things with AI that no one else can do. Uh, and so that allows you to offer really unique value to the market. And the second thing is the patterns or the, the processes. Eventually, maybe we have a super intelligence of AI that just knows every pattern, knows how every industry works, et cetera. But in as much as you can gather data to about your process, about what you've learned over your 20, 30 years of experience in a certain industry, well, that then can be fed into a model so that it, it can implement those at scale or use those to measure things or assess and find patterns. And so that's what we've been doing in our business. We're, we're a consulting firm. And so we've been recording every call we have, all the advice we give, every internal meeting. We record all this stuff and transcribe it so we can feed it into a model and say, look at the patterns. Yeah, this is how we think about solving problems. Help us solve problems better, right? And the same thing is having the data of, of for us about our users and about everything that we're doing. And so I think it's a, a important takeaway that, that since that's an area AI can drive value for your business. I love that you guys are collecting, you know, data, you have valuable data and you have processes where it can really highlight and illuminate and create useful insights. So very exciting uh, on that front. Well, Clyde, as we go to wrap up here, any final wisdom you would leave with the audience? You know, if you were talking to yourself back in the early days, maybe back when you were racing motorcycles, when you were younger, what advice would you give yourself that, that would help you? along your journey, maybe accelerate your journey a little bit or, or that would, would point you in the right direction. Well, for one, I would tell myself to stop and smell the roses. I, I'm one of those people that constantly is looking for next steps. So I think my career accelerated probably even a little faster than it should have at times. Like I promoted very fast. I'm probably the youngest battalion chief ever in Contra Costa County. And not said it had the experience, but I really look back. It's like, I should have really sat back and enjoyed those moments more. Other than that, you know, I think that something I learned is that nothing replaces hard work. And so it doesn't matter how many times you try something and fail, as long as you don't compromise your integrity, you know, learn from it, get up and keep going. So persistence and hard work. I'd always tell my firefighters, hey, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I'm the last last one that's going to give up. 
I always joke with my the thirteen year old. I'll ask her, "Hey, what happens if you get knocked down? And you got a black eye?" And she'll say, "You get up with a smile." That's right. And so, I think that that one piece is whatever drive you got. People have always had different ideas. Whatever idea someone's got, someone else has probably already had it. It's the execution and the hard work that that's going to make the difference. And so, I think that piece would be something I'd tell myself younger because I did learn it, but just want to instill that in myself when I was young. That's awesome. I appreciate you sharing that, Clive. If anyone uh, listening to the podcast wants to help you out, wants to is interested in Long RX or wants to return some of that karma back to you, what what do you need or what could they do to help you? Where could they find you and to support what you're doing? LogRx.com, that and then I'm on LinkedIn, probably the only Clive Savicool on the planet, so not too hard to find. Uh, and then for karma, that the project we're doing in Portland for the buprenorphine naloxone. I think it's also called Suboxone. We offer that for free. So like I just reached out to LA County, reached out to San Francisco because anybody watches the news, they see we've got a homeless challenge here in California, West Coast. And basically that, that's our karma. Anybody that wants to use our program will work with you. No charge, no, no requirement to use our other paid program. We want to do our part to help society. And so if anybody's looking for good karma, just recommend us to your city and, and we'll give it to them for free to help with the, the homeless challenges. Wow. That is awesome. Thank you so much, Clive. Appreciate your time today. And hopefully we can find some people to put you in touch and, and, and spread that because God knows that we've got an issue in many cities with, with opioid abuse and addiction. And so I would love to see some progress on that. Thanks so much for all you're doing, Clive. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Hey, before you go, I have a small request. Our mission is to empower as many people as possible to maximize their potential through the power of leverage. Could you help us in this mission by leaving a review on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube? And if you know just one person who would benefit from today's episode, would you please share it with them? Your support means the world to us, and we are thrilled to have you in the community. Thank you for being a part of our journey and helping us grow. You can find show notes for today's show and past shows at LessonsInLeverage.com, which also has links to connect with me personally and connect with our various podcast channels across your favorite social networks. A big thanks to Solve.Cloud who sponsored this episode. They're a group of expert consultants that help SaaS and financial services companies to implement, optimize, and manage Salesforce.com. They can help you with custom integration solutions and are helping customers to implement some of the most important generative AI technologies. You can find them at Solve.Cloud. That's S-O-L-V-D dot cloud is the URL. Thanks again, and we'll talk soon.